Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys episode 149, John Peter Zenger and the freedom of the press. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today, as we approach our 150th episode... Which is the next episode. um, Tom and I, we're taking stock in the various groups of people who we've been fortunate enough to have as listeners for the show. Young and old, New Yorkers, those who have never been here, Americans, people who live outside of America, around the world. One group that we haven't given a specific shout-out to are the students who listen, because believe it or not, the show is a suggested listening to several classrooms around the United States. So we will dedicate this show to a particular classroom at the end of the show. We're honored to have students of all ages and all types of schools uh, listening to the show. So this one is for the students. So why did we choose this topic of John Peter Zenger and, and the freedom of the press? Yeah, so this is a very old school story. It's set in the 18th century. It's set before the American Revolution. I happened to be in jury duty recently, was not chosen for a jury, but in this sort of amusing little intro tape that everybody has to watch starring like Diane Sawyer with a right. 90s haircut. And famous New York jurists. Yes, they they do a reenactment of the John Peter Zenger trial. So it's not just important for the history of freedom of the press in democracies and in America specifically. It also has ramifications within the legal world. This is a story that takes place in the 1730s and involves a conflict between a normal printer who lives in the area that's around downtown Manhattan and a very despotic New York governor. Freedom of the press, as we know it today, was really an unheard of concept at the Mm -hmm. time. This is really more a story about libel, about the ability to print factual information, even though it might be conceived of as scandalous, about public officials. And just in case you think that this is getting a little too abstract in our description here, I want you to know that it's planted very firmly in New York soil here. Most of the story will be set at the corner of Wall Street and Nassau Street, which is today's Federal Hall. So join us as we turn the page back to the 1730s and meet... The man named John Peter Zinger. All right, Greg. Well, before we just jump into this whole issue, if you will, of John Peter Zinger, a word about the 17th. 30s in New York City, which was a time of British colonial rule. It's really a time that we haven't paid that much attention to, and I don't I know. know why. This is one of the few remaining shadows left on the kaleidoscope of New York history that we've that we've painted thus far, simply because I like to focus on the stuff that happens after the Revolutionary War, because there seems to be more evidence of it in the city around us. But I will disprove myself in our story today because you can still kind of envision the New York that we're about to describe. You know, it is less than 300 years ago. I will situate us into the New York colony or later to be called the province of New York. 
To go back even further here, just to remind everyone that the Dutch set up the original colony of New Amsterdam, you know, which lasted from 1625-ish around there to 1664, when the Dutch were rudely kicked out by the British, who then renamed the area New York after the Duke of York, who was new. <laughs> and this was 1664? And that was 1664. But no, New York, the city proper, and so we're talking like the whole colony is far more than just the city, but in fact, the city would remain the capital of the British-controlled colony. It just made sense. There was a f- huge fort here, an infrastructure, and, and, a port. and the port, and the port, of course. And so the, the British would send over a governor, a person to run the province for them. Right. Now, now population-wise, we're not really talking about a lot of people. At the time of our story, in 1735, there was about... 10,000 people that lived in New York. In the city. In the city, right. Also, by 1735, uh, the city proper is still relegated to the lower tip of Manhattan. The northern edge is around where modern City Hall is, you know, where the Brooklyn Bridge is. So this is how the British controlled the colonies. This is how it operated. The king appointed a governor of each colony. But, you know, the problem is the king is located across an ocean. So it would take a while for information and news to get back and forth over that ocean. So there was a lot of room for independent streaks to make their way into government here. And you can imagine that the people who are being appointed to be governors and to run these colonies might also get those positions because of a little political favoritism. Most likely, in fact, sure. So they weren't necessarily (laughs) well-seasoned at running governments. As we'll see. Now, that fort that sat at the tip of the island, Fort Amsterdam, that remained the headquarters for the governor of the colony. Um, In 1735, it goes through several names, but 1735... It's called Fort George. And by the way, that's where the today's U.S. Customs House is, the, the Museum for the American Indian. If you sort of want to start tracking where everything is in the story, we're going to tell you where all of these places are. So just because the British are in charge, of course, doesn't mean that there wasn't a little bit of internal strife here. For instance, in 1689 was the Leicester Rebellion, which is where the colonists essentially took control for almost two years, pulling it out of the hands of the British-appointed governor. Of course, that rebellion was eventually squashed, and the leader, Jacob Leisler, was executed. In the year 1700, the British decided to replace that old Dutch city hall, the Stadthaus, mm. that had been there since the beginning used for city business. They decided it was probably way too small, right? Way too small and just old, and they needed to demolish that and build a brand new structure at Wall Street and Nassau Street. Okay. Um, so that building would stand there for over a hundred years and serve a myriad of purposes would be filled with all sorts of municipal functions. In fact, let me walk you floor by floor because we're going to be visiting some of these floors. We'll even be stuck here for a while. Yes, we will. So keep in mind, this is like almost every kind of civic duty is coming through this building. In the basement, for instance, is the criminal's dungeon. Yes, this is indeed where they would put the the worst possible criminals because, of course, there was no other place. There was no other jail. There wasn't right. like any place upstate. You didn't ship them off someplace, so you just kind of locked them into the basement. And, yes, and we're talking very medieval-like conditions, I'm quite sure. On the first floor, you had a very pleasant common hall to greet visitors. Over in the corner is where you kept the fire engine. Oh, (laughs) indoor. (laughs) Indoor, yes. On the second floor, you'd have a lot of your administrative buildings, including the Supreme Court, a grand jury, a jury court, and then over on the corner, the mayor's council room. And then on the third floor, there would be additional jails. There would be a debtor's prison, and there would be a jail for small crimes up right. there. So these were people who didn't qualify for the dungeon. Right. So this didn't scare you enough and, and put you back into a mindset of like, oh, this is definitely not very modern. Out on the street, just a little east of City Hall, um, in 1703, the city put a pillory, a whipping post, and stocks, you know, where you put your head and hands to this thing and get locked in and people can throw eggs at you. So, so many accommodations for prisoners and for those who have done ill. Just here in this very spot. So, but it's also for, it's law and order in every sense. Now, it's no surprise that the most powerful families of the day were also in charge of, you know, were placed into all these powerful government positions. These 
families whose names carry on today in the names of streets around the city, like Delancey and Van Cortland, Livingston and the Morrises. Now, I also need to remind us, unfortunately, this is also a period of slavery. In fact, in 1712, were the horrifying slave revolts, which was a veritable witch hunt, basically, stemming from the burning of several buildings. There was, in fact, a conspiracy by a small number of slaves, but a greater number, 21 of them, in fact, were sentenced to death by being burned at the stake because of the vast rumors and lies that were spread around this period of time. So well into the 18th century here, the governors kind of treated the colonies with a little less respect, a, a more contempt, I would say. As the Viscount Cornbury mm-hmm. once said, the colonies were mere, quote, twigs belonging to the main tree, unquote. So I'm sensing a bit of condescension on the part of the royalists coming over to, to tend to these twigs. Absolutely. Now, on November 8th of 1725, the very first New York newspaper was published here in New York, the New York Gazette, which was published by the Quaker William Bradford. This was not a newspaper in any sense that we would consider today. As described by the author Frank Mott, it was, quote, a small two-page paper, poorly printed, and containing chiefly foreign news from three to six months old, state <laughs> papers, a list of ships entered and cleared, and a few advertisements. So not exactly your lady's home journal here. But it, but it was the, the colony's only paper. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to get news, and of course not everybody was literate. In fact, most people were illiterate. I guess it was a novel thing to be able to buy the news. Well, and Bradford had been running a print shop because in addition to putting out a newspaper, they were also printing advertisements and printing notices, legal notices, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And just two years before that, uh, Bradford in 1723 was in his print shop when a a young man from Boston came in, the door sort of swung open, and this boy comes in, a 17-year-old, and says, and says, excuse me, sir, but I would love to work as a printer's apprentice here. I'm, I'm, I can set type. I can do these things. Bradford looked around. And he simply didn't have the work to take on another apprentice. And so he sent the boy off on his way. The boy, of course, would head further south to Philadelphia and find another print shop willing to take him on. And, of course, the boy, Greg. Benjamin Franklin. Can you believe it? He was that close. Benjamin Franklin was that close to being a New York story. There but for Bradford's disorganized print shop. Right. Or <laughs> maybe could, too organized. Maybe too organized. He, he we, didn't need an, an apprentice to organize We it. could have had Ben Franklin here. There's a lot of Philly praise that's going to go on in this podcast, so stay tuned. So in the early 1730s, the governor sent over in charge of New York was a man named John Montgomery, who was well-liked enough. He died from smallpox on July 1st, 1731. And, well, of course, it took time for the news to get back to England and for them to find a suitable replacement. While New York was waiting for a replacement, they, they sort of picked an interim governor from New York's provincial city council. His name was Rip Van Dam. <laughs> um, that's a great name. And I think there's a Van Damme Street named after his family. Well, and he was a larger-than-life character. He made a fortune as a shipbuilder and as a merchant. He fathered 15 children. Damn, Van Damme. (laughs) Van Damme and Damme and Damme and Damme and Damme. (laughs) Well, he served until August 1st, 1732, when a man would arrive on a ship from England to take over his job. So really, for about a year, 13 months, Van Damme served as governor. Well, the, the man who would replace him was a certain William Cosby. Bill Cosby. William Cosby. <laughs> right, right. And when he got here, I mean, he did find a completely different world in New York <laughs> when he arrived. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm sorry. Like, like most people appointed to these things, he had family ties. Um, no, but seriously, William Cosby was, was nothing to laugh about. He was, he was disliked. Mm-hmm. To say he was disliked is an understatement. He was inept. He came over. He had some experience running other colonies for the crown, which is really unthinkable because once he got here, he just made enemies left and right trying to buy people off, take bribes, take people's land. He was mean-spirited. He was spiteful. Those are just the pleasantries <laughs> that were said about him. And he him. just got here. So how, what was his relationship with Van Damme? What happened there exactly? Cause- well, so, so Cosby, of course, takes over for Van Damme, or Van Damme had just been standing in for Cosby. 
And Cosby decides to pick a fight with Van Damme, who, by the way, remember, is popular. And mm-hmm. Cosby's popularity, his newfound popularity, is plummeting. <laughs> he insisted that Van Damme hand over half of the salary that he had collected during his 13-month service as the interim governor. Wh- Why? Why? Yeah. Because he wasn't sanctioned by the king officially, I guess? or Well, he just thought that it was unfair that this other man should be paid for basically his position. And he was the new governor, and he had all these powers, and he just commanded Van Damme to, <laughs> to hand it over. Well, this actually went to court. Cosby mm-hmm. wouldn't just let this go. He took it to court. He knew that he couldn't win this case by a normal jury trial because everybody already hated him. So <laughs> he decided to create his own type of court. This is pure Cosby. And he's, he's staffed with his Supreme Court justices, and he asked his attorney general to bring the case to court. Those three justices on the Supreme Court were James DeLancey, who mm-hmm. was kind of a royalist, Frederick Phillips, and Lewis Morris, who was the chief justice. So this court ruled for Cosby, mm-hmm. the new governor, because they were a bunch of royalists, two to one. The dissenter was the chief justice, Lewis Morris. So who kind of knew, understood that what was ha- going on was not kosher. He, right, no. But again, Cosby didn't let anything go. Cosby was so infuriated by the fact that his chief justice would act out publicly against him that he had him removed from his job as chief justice, and he was replaced by James Delancey. You'd, so you just replace who you don't like. Right, and, and, and form your own courts. So I can understand why people have simmering dislike for this man, Mr. Cosby. And the simmering dislike mobilized his opponents, who were ever-increasing, to raise their voices, at least to each other, against him. But really, what could they do, you know? He controlled the courts, and even he controlled the newspaper that you mentioned, the Mm -hmm. Gazette, put out by Bradford. It was controlled by him. So... So his opponents had very little recourse. In fact, he so controlled the Gazette that sometimes the Gazette would publish little verse, flattering verse of Cosby. Oh. For instance, the line, quote, Cosby the mild, the happy, good and great, the strongest guard of our little state. He unconcerned will let the wretches roar and govern just as others did before. Hymn number 163, (laughs) Cosby the Great. I mean, obviously nobody believes that. No. That's propaganda. It is propaganda. So Van Damme, who's been charged in court, and ex-Chief Justice Morris, band together along with a lawyer named James Alexander and decided to form their own party, which they called the Popular Party. (laughs) That's what I'm going to call my parties from now on. This is the popular party. It's like the Heathers. <laughs> Except not there because they're on the outs. So they're the cool kids. All oh, right. <laughs> and they obviously need some kind of mouthpiece, some organ, some, I don't know, newspaper. Something to counter the Gazette and it's like happy little poems here. And so now we get to the hero of our story, uh, the man named John Peter Zenger, or as I like to call him, JP. Mr. Zenger, uh, he was born in 1697. Uh, so like in time for our story, he's a, in his late 30s, right? Born in an area of Germany called the German Palatinate. Mm-hmm. He came to the British colonies with hundreds of other refugees from this area in 1710. It was a five-month journey over. And unfortunately, on the voyage, his father died, as did hundreds of others on the boat. So young Zenger here ended up arriving with his stranded here with his mother and two other siblings. The refugees were banished to Newton Island, which is Governor's Island, uh, for fear of disease. But young 13-year-old Zenger here managed to get back to New York and become an apprentice for Mr. William Bradford. So he basically lived under the wing of Mr. Bradford here and lived in their house even. So Zenger would apprentice here with uh, with Bradford for a while. He would move to Maryland for a little bit, but by 1722, he was back working for Bradford, and he married Anna Katerina Mowlin, who was a Sunday school teacher, and uh, would take his name, Anna Zenger, and she'll figure into our story a little bit more later. Yes, she will. 
he would work with Bradford at the Gazette even during the time that Ben Franklin came knocking right. at the door. Because he came a knocking in, in 1723. He learned everything he could from Bradford, and they even became partners for a very short time. But the following year, he set out to form his own print shop over on William Street, and later moved his home and shop, because of course back then you had it all, oh, all in one, one. Yeah. down on Broad Street near the water. So again... We're going to be spending a lot of time here at Wall and Nassau, where Federal Hall is. This is just a, such it's, a, it's a few steps away. Right. Everything takes place within a few blocks. And his house even would, be, would have been a block from Francis Tavern. Like, uh, that's just chills almost. Mm. Gives me chills. So that's the kind of thing that gives Greg <laughs> Young chills. Thank you. You know, there's still a big, great Dutch presence in New York. There were still several farmers and businessmen who remained after it became New York Colony. So Zenger actually published many publications in Dutch. And it's even said that he published the very first book of arithmetic that was ever put to ink in the United States from his little print shop here. Wow. Um, you know, so Zenger, of course, had seen all the these wicked machinations of William Cosby. The ridiculous verse in the Gazette. Yeah, oh, he would have seen all of that. And, you know, newspapers at this time were defined almost strictly by political or religious interests. We don't have the modern concept of... Fi- Objectivity. Of, of, right, exactly. In November 5th of 1733, the print house of Mr. Zenger here produced the very first issue of the New York Weekly Journal, quote, containing the freshest advices, foreign and domestic. Um, it was a four-pager produced obviously each week sold for three shillings zinger of course with the buy-in with a lot of these anti-cosby people so 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 the people from the popular party the popular party uh basically helped zinger start this newspaper and through pseudonyms started criticizing the governor pseudonyms such as timothy wheelwright john chisel so mr chisel and mr wheelwright these were i guess representing the people Right. Yes. These are Pers- oh, those names are like th- these are laborers. Telegraphed. These are yes, absolutely. And, and these are people who uh, I guess would make a pretty stark contrast mm-hmm. with the bloated bureaucrats sent over from London. Well, this this per- paper worked on like a lot of levels here because according to Edwin Burroughs in the book Gotham, the New York Weekly Journal was filled with quote outrageous lampoons, brutal caricatures, mocking ballads, and double entendre entertainment. <sighs> <laughs> Sounds like a night of vaudeville. On top of Morris and Van Dam, there were the two noted lawyers, James Alexander, whom mm-hmm. you mentioned, and another one, William Smith. Now, this journal had some very clever articles, witty stories embedded with sort of sarcasm. One issue featured an ad for a lost pet here. By what, the way, the, what kind of pet? Well, quote, a large spaniel of about five foot five inches high has lately strayed from his kennel with his mouth full of fulgum panagenics, and his ramble dropped them in the New York Gazette. <laughs> so obviously he's talk. They're talking about um, one of Cos- one of Cosby's cronies. And by the way, the word panagenic meaning formal writing or speech. There was even a further description of the so-called spaniel that involved a puppy with a like a birthmark on its head that was of course the initials of Cosby's crony. Like they weren't very they were pretty obvious here. In another article, it was a phony interview with a magician who was looking at quote Kabbalah letters to see which letters were like lucky letters and which ones were unfortunate. Of course those that corresponded with Cosby and his friends were the unfortunate letters. So, I mean, it was all this sort of underhanded, but of course people loved reading the Weekly Journal. Um, They quickly had to do several editions. And it it makes it more exciting, even having a thin veil. Something just barely obscured makes it a little bit more exciting. There weren't a lot of outlets for sarcasm here um, in 1730s in New York. Or political parody. Everyone realized who was behind it. There's not a lot of people in New York at this time, obviously. But word gets around. And, of course, you see, like, Lewis Morris and James Alexander walking into Zenger's (laughs) establishment. So... People put two and two together, and it got kind of dangerous for them, in fact. One evening at the home of James Alexander, his wife discovered a note that had been left outside the door. It was a death threat. I would like to read it because it's so ominous. So the note asks begging for money like it's written by a beggar, but then it takes this dark tone. 
This is a bold request, but I desire you to comply with it, or you and your family shall feel the effects of my displeasure. Unless you let me have them, I'll destroy you and your family by a stratagem which I have contrived. If that doesn't take the desired effect, I swear by God to poison all your tribe so surely that you shan't know the perpetrator of the tragedy. And so then the note asks him to leave money in a certain place. I mean, you've seen this in TV shows, but this is yes, but never with his yes, accent and never with his flourish. <laughs> if I find any watch to guard me in taking of it, I'll desist and not take it. But follow my intended scheme and hinder you from acting any more on the stage of life. Oh, I mean, could you imagine getting that note in the middle of the night? So these are the kind of death threats they're already getting for publishing these, you know, these veiled sarcastic articles in the journal. Do we know if James Alexander paid this ransom? No, they actually reported them, but it got back to the governor. So mm. they reported them with the with law enforcement of the day, who probably wrote it. They the yes, exactly. The the governor actually limply offered a reward, but no surprise, no one was ever arrested for this particular crime. And happily, James Alexander continued on the stage of life. In fact, things were looking up for the Popular Party. In September of 1734, several pro-Morris Popular Party participants were elected to the city assembly. So the city was really happy and celebrating. And so that evening, someone started passing around these these documents and printed on the documents were the lyrics of like a ballad. It was a song. It was a song that had been written and it was to be sung to the tune of you fair ladies now on land. But in fact, it was another sarcastic little tune, a parody tune um, mocking Cosby and all of his cronies here. So this is kind of the thing that broke the camel's back with Cosby because he was incensed, of course, by this publication, mm. but as of yet had, had not done anything drastic. And just a, a very basic question here. Because he was in charge of New York province, mm-hmm. Cosby was still based in New York City. Yes. He wasn't up in Albany. This is a later construct. I mean, he's a few blocks away from all of these. Right. These... So he's not removed from all of this, um, from all this parody. These like body ballads are being passed around just a few blocks from his house. No one could really confirm who wrote the songs. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't really accuse anyone. But he can prove who printed these papers. Sure. Uh, and so what does he do? He, Cosby does what Cosby always does. He... <laughs> decides to take them to court and skirt around justice as best he can. So he had his friend, the Attorney General, file an information, quote-unquote, before his friends in the Supreme Court, Justices Delancey and Phillips. And they, in turn, ordered what's called a bench warrant for Zanger on November 2nd, 1734. To have him arrested. To have him, right. In the warrant read, quote, it is ordered that the sheriff of the city of New York do forthwith take and apprehend John Peter Zenger for printing and publishing several seditious libels dispersed throughout his journals or newspapers entitled the New York Weekly Journal as having in them many things tending to raise factions and tumults among the people of this province, inflaming their minds with contempt of his majesty's government and greatly disturbing the peace thereof i mean severe words severely severely read (laughs) thank you and i'm not done the final sentence (laughs) and upon his taking the said john peter zanger to commit him to the prison or common jail of the said city and county so it it was really um, grab him grab him put him in jail so but two things i wanted to say when first of all they're throwing him in jail for printing things Mm -hmm. which is a a pretty shocking thing to think of today but number two for raising factions but number two it's zinger's taking the heat here like the printer it's possible that he didn't write that much for his own newspaper because he wasn't as eloquent in english as of course many of these other men so he was just being arrested for publishing these things and not for writing them right Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So 15 days later, on November 17th, the sheriffs arrested Zanger and threw him into the jail on the third floor of the old city hall. So he got to be up on the third floor and not downstairs in the dungeon. And he was initially locked up without any access to pen, paper, or other people. And this man had a paper to put out. Mm -hmm. So the weekly journal missed the next day's edition, which was the only paper it would ever miss in its weekly schedule. And this was noticed, you know, there was no publisher and there was no paper. It was a popular publication. And stopped by a highly unpopular governor. (laughs) So they set the bail. It was lawyers Alexander and Smith were always talking about the same people here. His lawyers argued to, guess who, Chief Justice Delancey, that he wasn't worth very much at all, you know, aside from the clothes that he was wearing and his print tools and whatnot. He wasn't rich. So they should set the bail really low, perhaps around 40 pounds so that he could could be let out. Mm -hmm. Well, no, Delancey set the bail at an impossibly high 800 pounds. <laughs> so there's I, no way, there was no way he was going to get out. And to be honest, I mean, he could have probably asked his rather rich funders and, you know, the people behind the paper to cough up the cash to get him out and to continue printing. But I think that they made a rather canny strategic move to keep him in jail because that would even... Bolster their cause further. Bolster their cause. It would probably bolster circulation. This man was putting out a paper. It would certainly give him a stage. So how long was he in jail for? Well, well, that's the thing. He was in jail for 35 weeks or eight months so wow. perhaps they didn't really uh, <laughs> anticipate that he'd be locked up for so long. And this is during the winter, and they don't have heat in prison. It's not pleasant. No. But, of course, being a newspaper publisher, he wouldn't be silenced. The journal resumed publication the next week, made possible largely to the fact that his wife, Anna, who you mentioned before, mm-hmm. would visit him daily along with some of the uh, household staff, and they would, uh, once he was out of solitary confinement, they would take notes from outside his jail door. He would whisper <laughs> and, and transcribe, um, dictate to his wife and to his assistants editorials and insights from inside the cell. In the, the first issue that came out after he got locked up, he wrote what he called an apology to the readers, stating that, quote, I have had since that time the liberty of speaking through the whole of the door to my wife and servants, <laughs> by which I doubt not you will think me sufficiently excused for not sending my last week's journal, and hope for the future, by the liberty of speaking to my servants through the whole of the door to my prison, <laughs> to entertain you with my weekly journal as formerly. Ever the newsman apologizing for missing an issue. Readers, of course, love this. They devoured it. They couldn't get enough of these stories coming from Zenger in prison. 
So let's get back to his legal team. Yes. So we mentioned... Alexander and Smith. James Alexander, William Smith. Exactly. And Cosby, the governor, had arranged for the case to be heard by his favorite court, the two-justice court of <laughs> Delancey and Phillips. The defense attorneys obviously objected to the fact that their case would be heard by these two judges who were complete Cosby sympathizers. Mm -hmm. So in retaliation, Chief Justice Delancey had the lawyers disbarred, <laughs> which is like I mean, that's so amazing. incredibly scandalous. You know, there was even Delancey, who should have known better, had these lawyers disbarred for suggesting that Cosby's court would not be able to to decide fairly. And what's incredible about them being disbarred is that they were, I mean, this isn't a big city. There were only eight lawyers that had been given exclusive practice in New York. Well, now there's six. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps it was good for business. But another lawyer on that little list was assigned to Mr. Zenger. Um, his name was John Chambers. And he was, well, not surprising. Let's give Mr. Zenger the most mediocre lawyer in town. Quote, more distinguished for his knack at haranguing a jury than his erudition in the law, mm -hmm. said one history, unquote. And that summer, 1735, Chambers requested that a fresh juror pool be struck for the trial. And both parties agreed to 48 men. Uh, to be chosen from the community in which to pick the juror. So, you know, you pick 48 people, and then from there, you, both sides of the table get to choose the 12. Exactly. Right. We're, we're right back to jury duty, yeah, I mean, where we started. It, it's almost almost like that still today, basically, minus Diane Sawyer and the video. Well, of course, in Cosby, he's going to try to disrupt this any way possible. So when they get around to finally pulling the jury, they had all agreed on the certain names, 48 men. Well, when the list came around again, there, was, there were new names on the list. There were new people. Of course, conveniently, the new names were all in the pocket of Cosby. They were all you know, Cosby's men, people who were controlled by him. Chamber so he, ha he had a second jury ready to be polled? Yes. And so, but yes, of new, new people. But um, luckily, Chambers rejected this, and then the original list was called back. So I take you now to the date, August 4th, 1735. Zenger has been imprisoned since in the November same, in the same building. So they take him downstairs into the court chamber on the second floor, which is on this day packed to the rafters. So many people are interested in this case because they're afraid that if Zenger is found guilty, that there's really no way for, for people to protest in the, in the colony. Um, there's no way to like air your grievances out. If if they cut this off, there's no other form of protest. And again, because he's being prosecuted for publishing materials that were deemed scurrilous or scandalous. Mm -hmm. So even on this day, as the day begins and the jurors come in to f sit in their chairs and the chambers notices that they've already like gotten the names and the they've given him the names in the wrong order as a way to like just throw them off to shake chambers and, of course, rattle the jury because you're calling them by the wrong names and everything. So hmm. even these little details, they just tried everything possible. But Zenger and Zenger's friends had an ace up their sleeve, a deus ex machina, if you will. Oh, I will. For as the case begins, an elderly gentleman from the back rises from the audience and this elderly man raised his hand and said, I am Andrew Hamilton, and I shall be participating in this court case. A shockwave rippled through the court. Outside, birds were disturbed from their branches and <laughs> flew away. Somewhere, a maid dropped a tray of china. <laughs> like the because they were so surprised <laughs> that the Andrew Hamilton, America's most famous and prominent lawyer... Exactly. So what had happened, he was a good friend of James Alexander, so the disbarred lawyer. Right. So after he got disbarred, he sent message to his old friend. Uh, in to Philadelphia. In Phil yes, in Philadelphia to basically seek the greatest legal help in the British colonies here. Um, Hamilton was so adept, was so well known for practicing law that it inspired an actual phrase, which is still used today by some, called the Philadelphia lawyer, which means, oh, I'm not getting just a lawyer. I'm getting a Philadelphia lawyer, meaning it's top rung, very adept. It's traces from Mr. Hamilton here. Wow. 
no relation, by the way, to Alexander Hamilton. I did check. I wanted there to be one, mm. but there wasn't. Hamilton was a Scottish man, was 70 years old by the time of this particular case, stricken with gout. But when he heard word of this case, he really wanted to participate and bring his expertise into it. It's almost like a good cop movie. Like right before retirement, he's going to do one final case, one last case to cement his reputation. Now, could he just stand up in the middle of a crowded courtroom and inject himself into this legal proceeding? Did he have the blessing of Zenger's defense attorney? Well, that's the funny thing is Chambers disappears from this story. Chambers is still technically the legal counsel here Mm -hmm. for Zenger. But Hamilton basically just takes over the room, almost by force of personality, proceeds to launch into perhaps one of the greatest defenses in the history of law up to this time. Now, Zenger is accused of seditious libel. Okay, which means anything that's published that maligns the crown or the official government is not allowed, okay? Regardless of whether or not it's true. Exactly. So that is what Hamilton's argument's going to hinge on. He steps forward, essentially agrees that these documents, that these newspapers were scandalous accusations. He says that, yes, Zenger did, in fact, publish these scandalous newspapers. That is all true. But then adds, quote, I hope it is not our bare printing and publishing a paper that will make it a libel. You will have something more to do before you make my client a libeler, for the words themselves must be libelous. That is false, scandalous, and seditious, or else we are not guilty. And this is new, right? This sounds perfectly reasonable and rational to us today listening to this, but... To people in the 1700s in a courtroom, this is a revolutionary concept. This wording is part of English law as the description of seditious libel. But everyone up to this point naturally assumed that if you were being sued for this, that it must have been false. Quote, this word false must have some meaning or else how came it there? I hope Mr. Attorney will not say he put it there by chance. So... Throughout the documents of this case, he hammers this home over and over and over again. In fact, using many examples from other British trials of how ludicrous it is to say that something that's truthful would be libelous. I can see how this would be really frustrating to the judge and to the prosecutors who are really framing this not at all in terms of whether or not that which was printed was true, but only as whether or not Zenger had published these things. Right. It was almost steering away from what Chief Justice Delancey thought was the point. In fact, he declared that the truth couldn't be submitted into evidence based on English law. But Hamilton keeps bringing home the almost like the meanings of the word libel. Like he says, quote, there is scarce a writing I know that may not be called a libel or scarce any person safe from being called to an account as a libeler for Moses, meek as he was, libeled Cain. And who is it that has not libeled the devil? How can a man speak or write or what must he hear, read or sing? Or when must he laugh so as to be secure from being taken up as a libeler? Wow, so he's really getting philosophical. And meanwhile, Delancey was saying, and I quote, The jury may find that Zenger printed and published those papers and leave to the court to judge whether they are libelous. So Delancey is saying this is all really nice, but just cut to the chase. All you have to decide, dear jury, is whether or not Zenger published these things. That's the point of this entire trial. Well, and finally, in the closing argument, really, Hamilton sums up his whole point. If I might just read a little bit from his closing argument, he says, the question before the court and you gentlemen of the jury is not of small or private concern. It is not the cause of one poor printer, nor of New York alone, which you are trying. No, it may in its consequence affect every free man that lives under a British government on the main of America. It is the best cause. It is the cause of liberty, 
and I make no doubt but your upright conduct this day will not only entitle you to the love and esteem of your fellow citizens, but every man who prefers freedom to a life of slavery will bless and honor you as men who have baffled the attempt of tyranny, and by an impartial and uncorrupt verdict have laid a noble foundation for securing to ourselves our posterity and our neighbors that to which nature and the laws of our country have given us a right to liberty of both exposing and opposing arbitrary power, in these parts of the world at least, by speaking and writing truth. At that point, he dropped his microphone, tossed his wig back, and walked back to his chair. That was brilliant, Tom. Um, so, so artful. I mean, as you, as you yourself... I'm artfully. just, I'm flustered now. Yeah. <laughs> As you yourself so artfully described, Hamilton's own words and these powerful and important and truthful monologues right. basically swept the whole court into basically his own lap. And, um, which, by the way, he was he was proclaiming without any sort of notes, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, and this... You teleprompter, know, he had not. So powerful, in fact, that when the jury left, the room was abuzz. No one, like, everyone seemed convinced, but... But certainly they had to decide based on the law as Chief Justice Delancey had declared it. But in fact, it took 10 minutes for these 12 men to make the decision. They came back and they declared Zinger was not guilty. And in doing that, it's the modern concept of jury nullification, where the jury said, you are, in fact, guilty of this act, but we're declaring the law in which you broke to be invalid. So they are overriding the judge. They're overriding the judge's instructions. This is probably the best known or most legendary example of this great power that juries possess, this jury nullification. Obviously, the courtroom erupted into cheers and, and shook with people celebrating. And Delancey, of course, threatened to throw everybody in jail if they didn't just pipe down. So, of course, naturally, they didn't actually, I don't believe, put him on his shoulders. They tried. They, did they? Yes. Well, the whole throng of people went, because this is New York, in 1735, they went one block to the Black Horse Tavern, where Mr. Hamilton was feted with a party. It's, a, it's incredible, actually, that like Zenger is free, but really the star of the show at this point was Hamilton. And well, and you say Zenger was free, but he was in fact not free that night. Zenger was marched back up to the third floor, where he spent one last night in jail while they waited for him to raise enough money to pay for his room and board of his jail cell that he had occupied for the past eight months. So that's why Hamilton was drinking with the gang uh, over at the Black Horse. Including the city's mayor, Paul Richard, who gave Hamilton a gold box containing a little... that contained the, quote, freedom of the city. And the next morning, as Hamilton was put on a ferry back to Philadelphia, everyone set off their cannons and guns in tribute to this marvelous Philadelphia lawyer that had saved the day here in New York City. So today we look back upon this episode of the Zenger trial as representative of the first victory in a fight for freedom of the press. But it's interesting because it didn't really do anything concrete to establish or codify the freedom of the press. We're still talking about life during British rule, after all. Freedom of the press wouldn't be officially guaranteed until the Bill of Rights was added to the U.S. Constitution about 50 years later. Mm-hmm. 50 years later, and in Philadelphia. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Another shout out. And But for the first time, it, this really signaled that the residents of the colony expected the ability to speak freely and believed that speaking freely included publishing and disseminating their beliefs. It also signaled, I guess, a a change in the definition of libel. The thought that to publish information that is seen as scandalous against a public person isn't libel if it's thought to be true. And that's a very new definition here. But think of the applications even today in this world of scandal sheets and Mm. celebrity tabloids. Yeah, they can always say, you know, the Post can always say, well, we thought it was true. They can't publish something that they know is a complete fiction. I mean, people like Kim Kardashian live in the shadow of Andrew Hamilton and John Peter Zinger. (laughs) Right there in the shadow. (laughs) The kaleidoscope of shadows. Didn't you say that? And about 50 years later, when the drafters of the Bill of Rights were 
bringing up this event while they were shaping the freedoms that would go into the Bill of Rights. One called the case of Zenger the, quote, germ of American freedom, the morning star of that liberty which subsequently revolutionized America. The man who said that, Greg, Mm -hmm. was one of the great writers of the Constitution, Gouverneur Morris. (gasps) Who was the great-grandson of Lewis Morris, who was, of course, the chief justice who was kicked out of out of the case and went on to form the newspaper with Zenger. Now, by the way, whatever happened to Cosby and whatever happened to Zenger... They went into syndication? <laughs> oddly enough, Cosby died the following year. But now you would think that maybe Zenger kept on the outside of everything, but in fact, he became the public printer of the province of New York when Cosby died and remained in that position until Zinger himself died in July of 1746. What's so strange about that date, Tom, is that he died July 1746. It would be 30 years to the month that Zinger died that, of course, the Revolutionary War would sweep through very violently through New York City. And finally to say that, that on the same floor that John Peter Zinger found his own freedom – We as a nation, not to be cheesy, grasp our own freedom when George Washington was inaugurated on the balcony of that very floor at Federal Hall in 1789. And now to bring it up to today, the building that was the old city hall was demolished in the 19th century and replaced by what is today the Federal Hall Monument. And they even have in their rotunda, if you visit today, which is great if you're on Wall Street, just pop in there. Uh, You can see a number of things, including an old printing press and a little mini exhibit on John Peter Zenger. But in other pressing news, we did say that we were going to get back to that school class and the school to which we were dedicating this particular episode. So dedicated to the students, past, present and future students of Stuyvesant High School here in New York City, who I know many are listeners. We greatly value and appreciate your listenership. And we're honored, in fact. And of course, you probably recognize that all these places that we're talking about are just a few minutes away from your high school. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll have a few historical images from the case itself, as a, and of course, many other articles that are relating to New York City history. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter as well. And I will have a new walking tour to purchase a good one. I'm so excited. In the next couple <laughs> They're of months. They're all good, Greg. They're all good. Yeah, but this one's going to be the best Trust me. Can I ask what the subject is? It's a surprise. It's, I'll reveal it on our 150th episode. And by the way, the topic, you are all going to flip out. It's like <laughs> there could be no other topic. And it's not the Empire State Building. It's the only thing I'll say. Okay. So stay tuned. In the meantime, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.